Welcome back, everybody, to What Really Matters. I'm Tablet Deputy Editor Jeremy Stern with you in Los Angeles. I'm here, as always, with Walter Russell Mead, Tablet News Writer, Global View Columnist at The Wall Street Journal, and Distinguished Fellow at Hudson. Let's start with this week's news. First story of the week. Over a thousand miles from Gaza, a naval crisis is unfolding that could transform the war between Israel and Hamas into a global affair with implications for the world economy. Since December 15th, the world's largest container shipping companies have suspended services in the Red Sea, the route through which traffic from the Suez Canal must pass, as Iran-backed Houthi militants in Yemen escalate their attacks on global shipping flows, ostensibly in support of the Palestinians. As one of the world's major trade arteries suddenly closes, the Biden administration announced the formation of a naval coalition involving 10 countries to protect commercial shipping in the Red Sea. The U.S. is reportedly considering possible military strikes against the Houthis, but has underscored that it still wants diplomacy to work and hasn't decided to go ahead. Meanwhile, the shipping giant Maersk decided to send its vessels around the Cape of Good Hope in southern Africa instead. The narrow strait between Africa and the Arabian Peninsula, which the Houthis are attacking, normally sees about 12% of global trade by volume and about one-third of global container traffic, according to The Economist. Walter, news or phone news? Oh, it's news. It's news. When a ragtag group of of, uh, militias in Yemen uh, feel ready, willing, and able to stop up to 12% of global trade, including an extremely significant proportion of European energy imports, something is happening, and it's not good. This is the kind of thing that in a normal year with American power in a healthy state, no one would dare to try even once. In fact, to some degree, that's the entire purpose of American foreign policy is to ensure that we live in a world where these things don't happen. And what's been happening under the Biden administration is that as the world, as various uh, forces out there perceive a lack of focus and will, and to be fair, not simply on the part of the Biden administration, but you can look at congressional debates over aid to Israel and Ukraine, and um, you can look at the general dissension in the country and see... You know, this is an America that's clearly off its game, that's not focused, it's maybe not as fearsome as it's been in the past, and people are taking advantage of it. One of the things that I've noticed is that, uh, at least in what I've read to date, the countries joining this coalition don't include the Gulf countries, who clearly have an important interest in this. I imagine both the Saudis and the Emiratis are quietly saying, you know, we Americans were trying to deal with the Houthis. And all the Biden administration would say was, "Ooh, a horrible humanitarian crisis. Help, help stop being so mean to the Houthis. Let's find a diplomatic solution. This is the reward that has come from that. Uh, In the same way, the Biden administration has done nothing but seek diplomatic solutions with Iran from day one. This is the reward because the Houthis very much would not be able to do this or willing to do this, I think, without at least tacit Iranian permission. So what we're seeing is a foreign policy based on trying to keep things quiet that is failing to keep things quiet. And I noticed it's far away and a different story, but Chinese pressure on the Philippines is steadily growing too. Chinese vessels are bumping and threatening to fire on Filipino vessels uh, in the South China Sea. 
And again, what you get is the sense that people around the world are just not impressed with things that this government says in Washington. It's news. I mean, just one follow-up there. Now that we are talking about a threat to the global economy, and as you just said, a threat to the entire raison d'etre of American international power, which is for the U.S. Navy to be able to protect the global free flow of commerce. I mean, what, in your opinion, would it take for the uh, administration or for Washington in general, the administration plus Congress, to take non-symbolic retaliatory measures, presumably the global economy, even that would pale in comparison to whatever other agenda the administration might have in, you know, relations with Iran. Well, I would say that what, you know, I'll just tell you what my fantasy is, which is that the president of the United States with the speaker of the house, the majority leader of the Senate and the ranking member of the house and the head of the Republican minority in the Senate, flanked by these people and a number of his cabinet officials, makes a statement on national TV about the global situation, about the crisis that we're in, makes the argument to the American people why this Red Sea crisis is important, how it's connected to other things around the world, and, and announces a very strong program of, if need be, military response to this. Make it clear to the world that not just one president or one party has woken up to this, but that this is the United States of America is speaking. I would also like to see in that same speech the president propose with the backing of these leaders a significant added increase in the defense budget based on the problems that we face. Honestly, I think if we do these things, we may not, we may find that we don't need the uh, increased defense spending, but that if we don't do them, we'll wish we had it. And that is, that's where we are now. We've kind of run out the clock on the sort of, you know, in the past people thought, oh, well, America's always been so powerful. It always does respond when there are naval provocations. So let's not do it. But what's been happening is it's, it's like a farmer puts a scarecrow in the field. And the scarecrow just sits there. The birds at first are scared. The crows are scared. But then a couple of bolder crows go into the field and they peck some corn. And the scarecrow just sits there, doesn't do anything. Well, the birds get closer and closer. Ultimately, they start hopping on the scarecrow's head. And they realize this thing is not a threat. We are moving in that direction. And Biden needs to demonstrate that American power is not a scarecrow. I'm not saying, let's go have a war. Wars are fun. Let's do war. I'm saying if we don't want war, we have to restore respect for American deterrent power. All right. Our second story. Americans 65 and over are playing a larger role in the labor force, shifting the composition of U.S. workers and reflecting a new reality where retirement has become a more gradual process for many. The share of older Americans who are working has doubled in the past 35 years, according to a Pew report. Workers 65 and over are also working longer hours and making more money than they were in the past. It isn't just that there are more older adults in the workforce, it's that a larger share of them are working, and it tends to be better educated older adults with a college degree in more senior and highly paid positions. Walter, news or phone news? 
Well, certainly from the standpoint of my personal bank account, this is this is real news and important news because I I fit exactly the demographic that you're talking about. It is, I think it's it's important news and good news. First of all, what would be bad news would be if the seniors who continue working were disproportionately poorer, less well educated, and and working in more manual and difficult jobs. Uh, that would be a sign that increasing poverty among senior citizens was a real problem. But this other this this uh, news that we have looks like it's kind of unmitigated good news, unless you're a Gen Xer waiting for that gosh darn boomer to retire so you can move up a notch. So hold on, Jeremy. The uh, you can't have my job for a while. Uh, but you know, look, medical advances in medical science. Uh, and a greater health awareness and just a simple thing like the national decision that that tobacco is really not a great thing to to spend your 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 life on has meant that we not only have people living longer people are feeling younger and have more energy as they age now you can look at this on the negative side we we seem to be heading for an age of octogenarian presidents one way or another but on the other hand just from the standpoint of, of the economy, the productivity, the, the fact that the best, you know, that well-educated and experienced people are choosing to work longer and can work longer is good. It's really good. I think we'll see more of this as time goes on. When you think about it, if you compare, say, my parents' generation, when perhaps only 10% of the population still went to college, sort of right around the start of the GI Bill, in my generation, a much higher percentage, we don't start working till much later in life, and later generations even more so. So very often, by the time you get done checking the boxes at the various quack law schools in the Ivy Leagues, you know, and you've you know, finish learning why Hamas is good and all of these other things. You're in your 30s before you you get out there and, and sell all your ridiculous college and school principles in order to make a lot of money in a big law firm. Uh, so uh, it's natural that, in a sense, our, our age span seems to be, our lifespan seems to be moving into the future, uh, sort of moving forward. And this, by the way, would suggest that some of those statistics that have people moaning, oh, Gen Z isn't buying houses at the same age as past generations and so on. And there could be some issues there. But at the same time, they're staying in school later. They're getting married later. They're having children later. Everything else is later. Why wouldn't home buying also come a bit later and retirement? There, there's one Criticism of you know what people I think maybe ungenerously refer to as gerontocracy. I'm I'm curious what you think of Excuse it. I, me. <laughs> I think meritocracy, applied meritocracy, demonstrated meritocracy. I believe that was the phrase you were looking for, Jeremy. Right. The the typical millennial criticism of demonstrated meritocracy being that you know, while public policy usually tries to benefit the a disadvantaged group like the poor relative to the rich or, I don't know, the handicapped relative to the able-bodied and so forth, you know, Americans over 65 are actually the wealthiest and the most powerful demographic in America or one of them. And yet things like entitlement programs or anti-discrimination laws, seniority rights and employment and so on, these are all designed to favor the elderly relative to the young. Do you, do you agree with that or no? 
I'm sorry, halfway through your conversation, it just sounded like some kind of futile yapping or something. No, I didn't. <laughs> uh, uh, look, I do think that that we're actually, we do have a social problem that's b- bigger than the U.S. and is a real one, which is that in a sense, the economic and cultural gap between generations has grown. So that given the changes in the tech environment and so on, uh, younger people are growing up in a, in a world that older people, except for those of us who are really cool and with it like me, uh, don't fully understand. And uh, at the same time, the combination of demographic change so that younger generations are no longer so big that they're just able to brush the old geezers aside. And then these medical changes that mean the old geezers are, are still kind of active and vigilant means that that younger people are living in a world which is not shaped to their preferences and which they can't find necessarily an obvious political way to shift. That's frustrating. And I think you'll find it also on the job where at 35, you know, you still have some, you know, you have an Uber boss who's a boomer and then you have a boss who's a Gen Xer and you just ranks down. And, you know, you got somebody who doesn't know how to put an attachment on an email trying to tell you, you know, what the social media strategy should be. So this is frustrating and it's irritating. Fair enough. I would I would guess I would say this is this is part of a, an even larger problem, which is that our society is is increasingly divorced. Our social patterns are divorced from our biological patterns, which is to say, normally in life, you you know, if you go back before industrialization, most people got married in their teens. They were economic adults by the time they were 20. Uh, They were doing whatever they were going to be doing. You look how old were the founding fathers at the time of the, you know, uh, American Revolution. Alexander Hamilton was in his 20s, in his 30s. He's developing the Central Bank of the United States without ever having taken a single economics class in an accredited graduate school. Right. (laughs) So, you know, we've developed this immense paper mache set of barriers, bureaucracies and so on. And people are spending the first 30 years of their lives navigating their way through this artificial environment. They're frustrated because people want to do real things. I even argue things like uh, some of the sort of gender surgery fad. And, you know, let's not everybody involved. Is it a fad? I'm certainly not trying to say that. But when something moves this quickly, there's clearly a faddish element to it. Um, tattooing even, people want to do something that lasts, that has meaning, because they feel like they're trapped in this artificial in playground environment of school. And in politics, in, in their careers, in real life, they're just consumers, not producers. They're subjects, not actors. And, and so, yes, that frustration of the younger generation is real. It's important. Politics, it's, it's, it's bigger than politics. It's, it's about culture. It's about social structure. I think the IR's information revolution will be blasting a lot of that open soon. I certainly hope so. And maybe try to think about how that can happen. But you have my sympathy. And, you know, and just please don't disturb me at the feeding trough, okay? (laughs) All right. Final story of the week. 
OPEC's one-time nemesis, U.S. shale, is rearing its head just months after the sector was all but written off as a threat to the cartel's sway over worldwide oil markets, according to Bloomberg. Drillers from the Permian Basin in West Texas to the Bakken Shale of North Dakota have ramped up oil production well beyond what analysts foresaw, pushing output to a record just as OPEC and its allies put the brakes on supplies in a bid to arrest price declines. This time last year, U.S. government forecasters predicted domestic production would average 12.5 million barrels a day during the current quarter. In recent days, however, that estimate was bumped to 13.3 million. The difference is equivalent to adding a new Venezuela to global supplies. Walter, news or phone news? Oh, it's news. And again, it's good news. It's a little paradoxical. Once again, you know, the one thing everybody hates, oil. American oil production is the one thing that is saving the Biden administration and the international economy from total disaster. Um, if oil prices, if if OPEC still were able, OPEC plus, may I add, Russia still had control of the global economy through an oil monopoly, where what would be happening to inflation right now? Where would the stock market that we've seen and inflation and uh, interest rates decline that we've seen since the Fed moved back to easing. Where would that be if oil prices, energy prices were still driving everything up? We're worried enough now about Putin making gains in Ukraine and war weariness in the West. Where would we be at $100 a barrel for oil with Putin throwing money around the Kremlin like a drunken sailor? So this is it's the best news if, if the if the Yemeni attacks, the Houthi attacks in Yemen are a sign of how weak the world order has become and how endangered it is. The robustness of American oil production based on technological innovation of turning a res- an unusable resource into a usable resource at an aggressive market price. Innovation, that's what is keeping things on something like an even keel. It's the curse of our times that so many politicians, you know, if you think about the sort of two things that are upholding the United States, it's this culture of of private sector innovation and a strong military. Those are probably the two things that big chunks of the Democratic coalition likes least about our country. Now, climate's a problem. The energy transit, some form of transition needs to happen, you know, but wars are bad for the economy and for the climate, too. A nuclear war would not be good for for any international efforts to keep the climate increase below 1.5 degrees centigrade. That's all I'm saying. All right. That does it for the news this week. Let's have the big conversation. So when we started doing What Really Matters about six months ago, Walter, we hinted to our listeners that in the background of a lot of our coverage, even when we don't talk about it explicitly in these terms, is largely shaped by three interlocking grand narratives that you see as driving the human story today or driving the historical period through which we're all passing in our daily lives. The first of those narratives, which we covered in our first episode of the podcast back in July, and which you wrote about in Tablet, is the rise of human technology and scientific knowledge and the accelerating social and economic changes that result. The second, which we discussed in our third episode of the podcast, 
and which you also wrote about in Tablet, is the rise of Abrahamic religion. And then the third grand narrative that explains our world today, we never got to. We somehow got derailed by, you know, Ukraine's counteroffensive, Chinese financial crisis, fall of Roe v. Wade, the war in Gaza. It's been a big year, and we'll talk more about that in our final episode of 2023 next week. But before the year is out, I, I do want to get to the third grand narrative after the rise of technological progress and the rise of Abrahamic religion, and that's the rise of Anglo-American power over the last 300 years. As I've heard you say before, the gradual construction of a liberal world system resting on a forward-looking capitalist culture and economy has been the big story of world history. Walter, tell us what exactly that means. You know, when I when I listen to people talk, and some of this, by the way, is coming out of a book I wrote called God and Gold back in 2007, but obviously I've been thinking about it since then. When people look at world history since 1492, since 1500, there's a tendency to talk about the rise and fall of Europe. And that's true. People on the right talk, you know, talk about the glories of Western civilization. People on the left talk about the evils of colonialism. Okay, fine. It's a coin. It has two sides. You can talk about it either way. But that, I think, misses the real story. Because, in fact, within the rise and fall of Europe is concealed something uh, something more important and lasting, and that is the birth, development, rise, and continuing force of this system of global power and economics based first on the power of Great Britain, when it was the British Empire and associated territories and countries, including economically speaking, the United States, and then after World War II, the balance shifted and it became a kind of, it was centered on the power of the United States. And in fact, this system is actually, in many ways, more powerful today than it was in 1900, unlike European colonialism, which has largely vanished from the face of the world. People in Beijing today spend at least as much time thinking about American hegemony and American power as they spent thinking about Europe as a whole or the West in 1900, the year of the Boxer Rebellion, not a great year for China. But the fact is that that this, if, if we think about its economic impact on the rest of the world, its cultural, social, technological impact, um, this Anglo-American thing. At one point in the book, I call it our cosa, the Cosa Nostra, our thing, is, is a bigger thing than it was 100 years ago. 100 years ago, it was bigger than it was 200 years ago. And in 1800, it was bigger, more powerful, more fully developed than it was in 1700. And yet we almost never look at it. Americans often think, oh, well, our power really dates from World War II and you know, so we don't understand the connections. We don't really understand. No, 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 we're we're Anglophone maritime hegemony 2.0, uh, not 1.0. There's a history here. Uh, and that history, on the one hand, has some very encouraging things. For example, since the 18th century, there's been a steady stream of opponents of this system. Uh, who have seen, who have tried to build basically land powers that tried to break the the hegemony of this liberal global system. Louis the Fourteenth in France, Napoleon's also in France, Wilhelm the uh, Tojo, Hitler, Stalin. 
Many people have tried. They've all failed. There are reasons why they've failed. And those reasons are things we have to understand today to understand our competition with China and why indeed China is still more afraid of us, more concerned about our power than you would think was justified when you look at how feckless and how stupid and how divided we've allowed ourselves to become. It's, you know, what is the key to it? If I were to try to reduce it to to something very simple, I would say it's the ability to harness the energy of capitalist transformation and change without having your society blown up by the consequences of that change. And if you do that, you'll continue to experience rapid growth and innovation. That will put you at the technological edge, both in terms of trade and in terms of military technology. And so that ability to sustain innovation without collapsing into anarchy or blowing apart into civil wars, that's been our secret sauce. Now, obviously, we look at the current state of the United States and you might wonder, hmm, do we still have it? I think we can have it. Uh, We can keep it. We can renew it. But we have to understand it and think about it. We can't just we can't just go on living on inherited social capital here. I think we have to really think it through and purposefully uh, rebuild the foundations of our national strength. I mean, as as one way into understanding it better, you mentioned the various critics, well, critics is putting it lightly, enemies over the decades and centuries of Anglo-American power from Napoleon to Karl Marx, Lenin, Hitler, Khomeinist Iran, Osama bin Laden, so forth. I mean, of all the serious criticisms of Anglo-American power in the world system it's built in the last three centuries, which do you find the most compelling or insightful? I think the the most compelling some that Admiral Mahan, you know, Admiral Thayer Mahan, what wrote uh, the importance of sea power in history, which is a foundational work in modern strategic thinking, and he made this point there that that I think is really strong. He talked about how the power of the sea was no less cruel than the powers of the land that preceded it. Was colonization brutal? Yes. Did the British imperial system involve enormous exploitation and misery? Yes. Were the British and the Americans in their diplomacy and in their strategic thinking um, as ruthless as anyone could wish? Yes. I remember the story of Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt and Avril Harriman. I don't know if we've talked about this one, Jeremy. During uh, uh, 1945, Roosevelt is dying. Uh, Harriman has is, is been working with diplomacy toward the Soviets. Stalin is clearly breaking all of his promises at Yalta toward Poland. And it's absolutely clear he's going to install a communist dictatorship in Poland. And Harriman and Roosevelt are talking, and Harriman is trying to get Roosevelt to do something about Poland. And he keeps coming back to it and coming back to it. And finally, Franklin looks at him and says, Averill, he says, are you planning to live in Poland after the war? And he says, well, actually, Frank, no, I, no, I'm not. Frank says, neither am I. Can we please move on to the next subject? <laughs> now, this is probably not a, a, a story that would raise a lot of laughter in Poland. But, you know, the reality was they needed Stalin 
against Nazi Germany. And then Roosevelt was hoping, Roosevelt not being sure that the nuclear weapons would work to end the war with Japan, thought he might need for Stalin to spend another million casualties helping to take down Japan in the Far East. And there was just no way he was going to let anything interfere with this. That's pretty cynical. An alliance with Stalin, the greatest mass murderer until now of the 20th century. But they did it. And they did it while maintaining, writing the Atlantic Charter, our love of freedom, universal declaration of human rights. The Roosevelt administration is simultaneously proceeding with all of these beautiful, liberal, sometimes platitudinous exercises in world statecraft, even as it is taking the most cynical, imaginable decisions. And I think you can still see that in American power today, and certainly could see it during the Cold War. Nixon going to China, you know, when the Soviet Union compared to Mao's China in in the 1970s was a paradise of tolerance and human rights compared to what was going on in the Cultural Revolution. Not the point. So this ability to work both in the channel of power while maintaining a kind of sense and an actual belief that you're building a better world and these are the necessary steps you have to do. You look at that from the outside, Jeremy, and it seems pretty calculating and cold. So I would say it is the exercise of power on a global scale something that, in a sense, by its nature, cannot be done delicately, beautifully, even if your strategy is sound and your objectives are good. And then much of the time with our power, we've behaved extremely stupidly. So the power that this system generates and has put into our hands does not necessarily make us wise. And in many ways, being so powerful for so long has made us stupider than other people who, you know, when you don't have power, you have to think. Israeli diplomats have to think a lot harder than diplomats from a place like the United States. Uh, So it makes us stupid and it makes us dogmatic and narcissistic, even as it makes us strong. So I think in that sense, the greatest the most valid objection to the Anglo-American system is just how intolerable the Anglo-Americans can so frequently be. All right, that does it for the big conversation. Let's end on the tip of the week. It's our last episode before Christmas 2023, and we've got a listener request from Jay of Naples, Florida, who wants to know your recommendations, Walter, for, quote, actually good Christmas music that doesn't involve Mariah Carey and isn't playing on repeat at Nordstrom's, close quote. Well, I would, I definitely, you know, it's a little bit of a cliche, but there is Handel's Messiah. Uh, It's awfully good. Uh, Christmas Oratorio. Well, that's actually a poem, but it's still good. I would say, gosh, well, there's always a Bob Dylan's Christmas album. I used to have a research associate who hated Christmas music and loved Bob Dylan. So this was sort of this. We talked about how evil boomers are imposing suffering on younger generations. This was one of the times I just kind of let my inner Satan out of the bag. But you know, it's it's not a bad album. 
There is also, by the way, oi to the world. The America may be the only country in the world that has its very own Klezmer Christmas album. And that one might be uh, that one might be worth getting for people who want a slightly unconventional take on Christmas. I was going to say hates Christmas music, loves Bob Dylan might be a good description of your average tablet reader. But I think you actually one upped it with Oi to the World. <laughs> so I think it's probably still available. It's a it's a great album. All right. Great. That does it for this week. Thanks to our producer, Noam Bloom. Thanks to my co-host, Walter Russell Mead. I'm Jeremy Stern. We'll see you next Friday for our final episode of the year. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. Next year. All our troubles will be out of sight